Hi folks, welcome back to the Finance Hour. It's good to be back after a break of around four weeks. Uh, hopefully you've listened to all the other episodes. Uh, we've talked about exchange-traded funds, term deposits, uh, property, and in this episode we talk about uh, how we bring it all together. And we've got a great uh, long interview with John Riley from Implemented Portfolios, uh, a boutique investment manager. And I discussed with him about their philosophy of how they structure investments. And we have a good chat about goings on, going on in the world, including what is happening in America with Trump. Uh, also have a bit of a chat about the ongoing scandals at Commonwealth Bank, which keep piling up one after another. And of course, my usual uh, segment, Propel Ahead of the Week. Hope you enjoy the episode. If you've got any questions or you've got any feedback, shoot me an email at rubenz, R-E-U-B-E-N-Z, at adaptwealth.com.au. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast. This is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm a financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial planning firm that works with business owners, professionals and those planning for retirement. Uh, we've been doing this podcast uh, for a few months now, and I welcome you to look at any of the uh, previous shows. They are available on iTunes. But this is the first show back for around about six or seven weeks. Uh, for those that know, the JS Studio has been undergoing a change of premises. Uh, we are now in the heart of Caulfield at Caulfield Junction. Uh, moved from our other auspicious uh, place on Dandenong Road. So we're back in the heart of Caulfield and it's been a big effort by a lot of people to make this move. It's a big upheaval. There's lots of heavy equipment to move and soundproofing to do. So a few people that have obviously been instrumental in that is Sean Meltzer, our, our president, uh, Gary Malin, our assistant producer, and Robert Bonchek as well. I'd like to thank them. There are probably many other people that have been involved in the move. Uh, I wasn't particularly, but I am certainly um, benefiting from this great new spot that we're in, and I'm really appreciative that uh, that we've got the opportunity to do our shows again. So we're back, and uh, hopefully you enjoy this show. Now, just before we get into the actual theme of the show, uh, let's have a bit of a chat about what's been going on in the world of business and finance. And the thing that's been occupying front pages, business pages, certainly for the last few weeks, is a continuing scandal at the Commonwealth Bank. So um, I'm sure that many of you have been aware of this. There's been a lot of issues go on there. Um, this most recent one it was a money laundering scandal. Um, you know, you can now deposit money in the ATMs. You used to just be able to withdraw money. Now you can deposit money. And apparently uh, some not very nice people were depositing large sums of money that came from unsavory sources. 
and was potentially they were potentially money laundering through the bank. They deposited the money in the accounts and then transferred them to all sorts of places. And the banks have got quite the whole financial system has got quite tight regulations on what needs to be reported uh, to a to a uh, organisation called Austrac, and it appears that that uh, did not happen. So that was a really a really big one. They're talking about the fines that could apply, uh, and the maximum fines is like you know seven trillion dollars or something. I think it was a couple hundred thousand for each uh, breach, and there were about five hundred breaches or the like. Not that that's going to happen, but it was certainly um, it was certainly big news. Um, and the other thing was that there's been uh, on the paper yesterday they discussed that there's been ten million dollars of insurance premiums uh, repaid uh, to people who took out insurance. So they took out the insurance when they were um, taking out a loan with the bank, um, but it turns out that they were selling income protection insurance to students. Uh, and to unemployed people who would never have been able to claim on it anyway. Um, so they sold unsuitable insurance. I'm going to discuss this a bit more in the propeller head of the week. But, you know, to me, that's ra- that's one of the worst things that they've done. And, uh, you know, you want to avoid those kind of insurances like the plague if you can. Uh, and this, this money laundering scandal and the unsuitable insurance uh, comes on top of the other scandals which have been... In the last year or so, there was a financial planning problems of inappropriate advice given to lots of customers, and they also had some issues in their uh, life insurance division as well, where there were claims that they weren't paying out when they were supposed to. So, but in the midst of all that, in the midst of all of that, they announced a ten billion dollar profit in the last week, which is a seven and a half percent rise. On the previous years, so there's good and bad news. Uh, the bad news for the CEO Ian Nareff is that he will be, in quotation marks, retiring. Um, they're not getting rid of him immediately, but uh, they said that they will by the end of the financial year. And I have to say, my take on that is, I think uh, I think he's largely been a good operator. I think he inherited a lot of problems. A lot of these things actually occurred before he came on board, um, but he's the person that's wearing it. Um, he's taking a hit of around $2.5 million plus uh, because he's not getting paid his bonus, but obviously his pay package is pretty good. Um, so, look, it's probably a little bit tough for him. He's the one that's taken the fall. Somebody had to. It had to be at the very top, the board decided, and so he is on his way out. Um, I think, though, even though I sort of feel that, that, that he's overall done a good job, and there are a lot of people that said that uh, he, you know, he upheld the corp- corporate governance quite well, um, I think there's still that culture of the bank of sell, sell, sell. And you know, I, I know that one of the policies of the bank is always the more kind of products you can sell to a customer, the more likely they are to stay with you. Uh, and I think that creates a culture a culture of selling sometimes at all costs. So they want people to have bank accounts and they want them to have loans and they want them to have credit cards and they want them to have insurance. They want to have life insurance. They want to, they want to get them car insurance. They want to get them home insurance. And, you know, that's just how the banks have generally always worked. And in the new sort of model of financial advice now, um, it's become a lot less about selling and all about sort of just giving 
you know, good quality advice um, that's not just related to, you know, the end investment product, to the insurance policy or to the managed fund. And I think it's really, really hard for the banks to adjust to that. Uh, and clearly they haven't done it. Are they going to do it slowly? Maybe. I mean, in my field, in financial advice, there's a lot of talk that, you know, the banks shouldn't be involved in financial advice at all because really, as I said, their culture is all around products and they seem to run into a lot of problems when it comes to financial advice. So that's been the big news for the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, there's been other stuff happen as well, but I think I want to start moving on to the theme of the show. And the theme of the show today is where do you invest? Now, we've had a few other shows recently about different kind of investment options, uh, and I encourage you to go back and listen to them. We had one on term deposits, which was a, uh, a really good discussion uh, with the head of Australian Money Market, which is a term deposit broker. Uh, we have spoken about exchange-traded funds, uh, a great episode on that with uh, an interview with Damon Gosen of Vanek. Uh, we've had a show on property as well. Um, so we've talked about the different elements, but what we haven't necessarily talked about is how we bring it all together, right? How do we mix these different investments um, to get the right type of portfolio? So today, uh, um, our interview is going to be John Riley, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Implemented Portfolios. Uh, Implemented Portfolios are a boutique uh, investment manager, which help in putting together uh, portfolios with client for clients of financial planners only and I've got to uh, announce that I do work with them with a with a significant number of my clients so we're going to have a good chat with John um, before we do that we're going to play a bit of music so we can get him on the line welcome back to the finance hour where we have got our first show in around about six weeks in our brand new premises in Caulfield Junction and today my guest is John Riley, the Chief Investment Officer at Implemented Portfolios, which is a, a boutique investment manager which work, who works with financial uh, planners for putting our portfolios together for clients. John, have I got you on the line? You do indeed. Hi, Ruben. Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're looking forward to My a pleasure. good discussion. Uh, John, just to give you some context, we've had uh, a number of shows in the last... Over the last year, we've talked to different people. We've talked to, about term deposits. Uh, we've talked about exchange-traded funds. We've had a show on property as well. But we have, probably haven't had one about how we put it all together. So hopefully we can have a bit of a discussion about that today. Um, but sure. the, the first thing I want to just raise, which I know is a, is a question a lot of our listeners would be thinking, is interest rates are low. You know, share markets are, are very volatile. Um it's a difficult time. How, how do we make yeah. sense of it? Um, well, you know, I think you're right that uh, the, the low interest rate environment is uh, probably the most important thing to think about in terms of putting a portfolio together now. Mm. Um, and the, the sense that certainly we have, uh, and the we I'm referring to is my colleagues on our investment committee when we discuss these things regularly, uh, is that the likelihood is that interest rates are going to be in a, a, a lower for longer is the phrase mm. that's become popular in that sort of environment for 
you know, at least the next few years. Um, the Reserve Bank has been on hold at 1.5% for the cash rate uh, for, for a good while now, and it looks like, you know, maybe at least another 12 months or so without them yeah, moving and, on interest rates. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, this is Australia, we've, we've, we've got low interest rates, but America, you know, relative to us, I mean, they're starting to increase rates a little bit, but they've even been a lot lower than what, what we've had. Yeah, that's true. And look, we had a, a much better experience through the financial crisis of mm. just on 10 years ago now. Uh, we obviously haven't had a recession over that period, whereas you did see really sharp contractions in, in Europe and North America in particular. And so monetary policy is a tool to try and support an economy. Obviously, if you make money cheaper, uh, it, it gives people more incentive to go and spend and invest. Uh, right. The problem they got to in those major economies was taking rates to zero wasn't enough to start to see their economy start to recover. Mm. So they had to go into all these extraordinary measures like quantitative easing and all mm. these other things, but essentially just pumping more money into the system. So, you know, they're, as we said, nearly 10 years past that recovery scenario. Um, so I, I, in the U.S., Yes, the US, they've just started to. The, yeah. the Europeans are now just starting to talk about it. In mm. fact, we may get a signal from the, uh, the central bank president of, of Europe in the, in the next couple of weeks when he speaks yeah. um, at, a, at a symposium in the US. So I, I just so, want to I just want to stay on that that low interest rate environment, right? And, and the challenges yeah. that that presents, because yeah, you know, your traditional retiree would you know, rely on term deposits, and the term deposit market is you know, billions and billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what specific challenges does that low interest rate environment you know, well, cause I think, us? You know, anyone who's been investing for the long term has become familiar with or you know, got used to much, much higher returns for safe investments. That's right. And yeah. so right now, safe investments just don't pay a lot. No. Um, you know, we've, we've clearly been in situations in the past where you've had government bond rates in double digits and term deposits would be in that sort of ballpark as well. But, yeah. you know, in, in, in a more recent sense, certainly 6 to 7% was what, you know, you could get without taking any risk. Yeah. Um, and that's really a key concept in terms of putting a portfolio together. Mm. If you, you know, it's, it's the basic risk return scenario. If I'm going to take on extra risk, then I need to be compensated to do that. Mm. Um, so, you know, term deposit rates in Australia, we, we sort of focus at the longer end of those and look for five-year numbers where you're probably getting around 3%. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. that's still going to be a shock to a lot of people. Absolutely. It's interesting. We had a um, discussion with a term deposit uh, broker and he was saying the vast, vast majority of term deposits, you know, that people invest in is six to 12 months. People just yeah. don't take that long-term view with them. No, that's right, and because, part of that's for the you know that's a, an entirely rational decision because you're just not getting compensated to mm. lock your money up for longer terms. So if it was a substantially higher return on a five-year term deposit or even a three-year versus a six-month, then that might make sense to do it because you know most people are looking for a, a long-term steady income out of these sorts of investments. Mm. But if you're not going to get you know enough additional return to compensate you for locking that money up, then it doesn't make sense. And you to stay do it. short. So, so that's mm. a, that's the term deposit market or the, or the fixed interest side, and then on the other side we've got the you know what we call the risk assets. I know you refer to you know shares and property based investments as risk assets. So, what yeah, implications do. do does the low interest rates have on those assets? Uh, look, the, the principal one there is in terms of how we value those assets, and so yep. part of it's just 
that sort of straight comparison we've been talking about. What do I get in a safe asset versus what do I get in a risky asset? But it also means, you know, we talk in terms of valuation multiples. So that might be, um, you know, the the, um, the ratio of the price to some underlying fundamental aspect of the investment we're getting into. So it yeah. might be price to earnings, price to sales, price to cash flow, price to any of those sorts of things, which is really just a way of determining um, what, what multiple of that fundamental aspect am I, am I paying? And the higher that number is, you know, the higher the price you're paying, the higher the valuation implied there. Now, in, in low interest rate environments, that tends to be supportive of higher valuation multiples there. Mm. Um, so basically so that means that people are, yeah, they, they, they go from investing in, you know, low return safe investments and giving up. It can, yeah, if, if they... Yeah, if they don't go in with their eyes open, and you know, probably the more extreme example is something like you know the last few years in the United States, where even as you can go out as long as ten years, and you're effectively getting zero on safe assets over there, term deposits, CDs, certificates of deposit, as they call them. You know, the two percent, three percent number over here, which we feel you know is 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 low as as you know normal context. Really, out there, you're getting you know a fraction of one percent, and and a small fraction of one percent. It might be as low as sort of point one five, point two, something like that. And there was even at uh, you know a, a point where they were issuing government bonds at negative interest rates, which just which just beggars belief. That means you're actually having to pay for the you know for the benefit. For the privilege. It's just it's, yeah. that's just mind blowing. Yeah. Look, it, it's it's. Uh, certainly counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. You know, why would someone buy, um, you know, a, a promise to get 99.5 cents <laughs> on the dollar back at, at a point in time, you know? Um, and there's a couple of different reasons for that. There's a, there's a whole series of sort of institutional or sovereign investors out there that are required yeah. to hold that sort of delay rate of government-issued debt. Yeah, and there's also people, though... Yeah, so, you know, if, if you bought a bond yielding minus 0.2, but it went to minus 0.5, then you can make a capital positive capital return there if you're savvy enough to identify those. So right, if it went further right. negative, you can still make a short-term gain as a speculative play, um, <laughs> quite different to what we would think about as using government bonds as the sort of safe anchor yeah. in a long-term portfolio. Yes, But yes. most of that's unwound now, yes, uh, almost yes. all of it, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we want to build portfolios using, using exchange traded funds as building blocks. So if we, by the basis of our forecast, we think that, you know, the Australian banks look good value, we're going to go and buy the ASX 200 financials index, yeah. which owns the big four and, and a smattering of others in, in, in that financial sector. Um, you know, same with like Europe, it's a good turnaround story over the last little while. So we buy an ETF that owns hundreds and hundreds of companies that give you that broad European exposure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's really, that's really the building blocks of the portfolio. Um, yeah, and that that that's I guess more on the on the uh, you know the share type side. And what about on the on the kind of defensive or the low risk side? Well, there's a lot of ETFs in that space as well. Yeah. Uh, so in, instead of owning underlying individual companies, they might be an ETF that owns government bonds or corporate bonds or those sorts of things as well. So there's there's literally thousands and thousands of these things listed around the world. Um, in Australian dollar terms, in total assets across defensive and risky, uh, risky assets, you know, exchange traded funds are worth about close to $5 trillion now, something like that. Yeah. 
So you can use it, you know, and, and by the same token, you can buy direct listed income securities. Um, probably some of your investors are familiar or your listeners are familiar with, you know, um, preference shares or hybrids, as they're sometimes called from the yeah. major banks. So, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of options there available. Um, but, you know, the key, again, to exchange-traded funds is certainly the physically backed ones are cheap, transparent, tax-efficient, easy to understand and easy to move portfolio exposures around, yeah. driven by your, your, your overarching asset allocation decisions. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So really, that's the building box that you, you use in terms of um, putting into place what your views are on the different sort of asset classes. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, excellent. Okay, Um that makes a lot of sense. And obviously the other aspect of it, which, you know, for my clients who are in using implement portfolios, which is really good, is the is the communication as well. Just sort of the regular uh, communication, you know, that people, yep. so that people can understand what's going on also. That's a big part of it, isn't it? I think it's absolutely critical and it's a really important part of my job. It's, you're trying to get people to understand what they own and why they own it. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the critical advantage, you know, that... that Again, I'll use the royal we as us as an investment manager, you as an advisor and your clients. If we can take a genuinely long-term view and buy those assets that are out of favour and, and are trading at discounted prices and might take a year or two or even three for that value to be recognised, then we'll get good portfolio outcomes. But yeah. You've got to tell it, you know, a, a clear story. You've got to have a transparent portfolio structure. So we do... I spend a lot of time... Um, in terms of written uh, communications as well, uh, we do a brief note on a Friday afternoon that just, you know, a little bit about what's been going on in the world that week mm. and a couple of bullet points about some portfolio activity. There's a monthly and a quarterly note, which are a longer form, sort of three, four pages. And really it's about, you know, what sort of uh, headlines might in, in investors have heard and want to get an understanding about, you know, is that going to have an impact on my portfolio? Is it something I need to worry about? Is there an opportunity there? Um, and then we try and supplement that with some face-to-face communication yeah. as well. So, yeah. you know, there's, um, that's that's the really valuable stuff where we can sit around and have a conversation and talk about, you know, what we're what we're confident about. What we, you know, we'll, we'll happily put our hands up and say there's things we don't understand at the moment in, in certain areas, um, and just try and be transparent so that together we can take that long-term view, avoid the short-term, you know, behaviours that. Um, lead to bad portfolio outcomes. You know, yeah. it, it's it, it's a funny sort of game when prices have gone up a lot, people feel more confident about buying into an asset, uh, and when prices are discounted, they feel a bit more scared, a bit more trepidatious about moving into that asset, and so that leads to the you know the the the, the opposite of what we should be doing: that buying high behaviour and selling low. Yeah. Obviously, we want to try and do the inverse of that as well. Yeah. So that's probably a good segue, as you say, talking about uh, you know interpreting what's going on in the world and i mean you know i suppose there's always uncertainty but certainly there seems to be more volatility particularly around you know the us uh with the trump administration um i heard actually a great quote today um there's one crazy guy um you know with nuclear bombs and then there's kim jong-un i think i know where you're going yes yeah yeah i did yeah um Uh, so so i mean you know that that kind of thing, you know, and the Twitter things. And, you know, I get clients that are saying to me all the time, they said, you know, how do we make sense of it? You know, because we're in uncharted territory here, aren't we, really? I believe we are, yeah. I don't think we've seen a president anywhere, anything like this, um, and, we're, and we're six months in. Mm. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of things to think about there. 
uh, any sort of analysis on any of the military options available for dealing with North Korea, you know, there are no good options. Um, mm. you know, well, well, according to Trump, there's we're going to unleash, you know, fury and fire and brimstone. I mean, that's... yeah, but no one knows what that means, <laughs> in, 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 including him. So, the, you know, the scary part is that, you know, is he listening to to the to the smarter, more sensible people around him? And you know, on that comment alone, it's become clear that they, you know, that was that was him talking off the cuff. Uh, you've then seen the likes of Tillerson and Madison McMaster's tr- trying to talk that back and saying, mm. um, "Hey, that, he know, didn't really mean to... it." Yeah, that, that's you know <laughs> that's been across a whole range of issues. So, yeah. I look. My sense of it is that not much will happen. There'll be some bluster. Um, you know, they, they there are no good, as I say, no good options for you know dealing with North Korea. Um, Seoul is you know an hour's drive from from the demilitarized zone. Take the nuclear weapons out of it altogether. He's got something like seven to eight thousand pieces of conventional artillery that can hit Seoul within minutes. Yeah. Um, you know the, the decapitation plan to go in and take out Kim Jong Un is you know, just is very very hard to see how that's going to be effective. Yeah. Uh, you know a bombing campaign to take out his nuclear assets is very very hard to see how that's a hundred percent you know complete. And if you miss one, well that's enough. Mm. Um, so I think they're just going to need to deal with him. Uh, interestingly, you have got a, um, a much more uh, accommodative uh, president in South Korea now who is you know, pushing back against the U.S. and also seems uh, amenable to, to opening talks and dialogue with North Korea mm. as well. So, look, you know, in terms of what does that mean for a portfolio, we haven't reacted to that yet. We do have some exposure into South Korean companies, the likes of Samsung and Hyundai mm, and those mm. sorts of things. Um, but we haven't deemed it necessary yet to, you know, to get that out of the portfolio. Yeah. Um, this isn't a particularly egregious, you know, example of a of a potential catalyst. But uh, we need to not react in the short term to those things. We can move quickly mm. if we need to. Um, but uh, my sense is that, you know, it's, this is going to play out. You know, it's been going on for decades. But do you, um, do you think, I mean, as I said, we're in uncharted territory with the president that we've got, and, you know, we talk about short-term and long-term, but does that have any long-term implications for share markets? I mean, is it just noise, or is it is there something uh, fundamental, you know, to the talk? No, this is, so there's a couple of things there. I never bought into, I'll, I will always remember waking up the morning after that November election thinking... That did actually happen. It is going to be President Trump, isn't it? And looking at the overnight markets and everything was up 3%. And we obviously mm. went on a huge rally in sort of November, December, January for months. Most of that Trump trade, as it was called, is being unwound. The, the U.S. currency is weaker. Um, the U.S. share markets are still at record highs. Yeah. Uh, they have had a reasonably sound uh, reporting season. Um, but you know, a lot of that you know that growth over the last four or five years has been in an expansion of that multiple, that valuation piece we were talking about before, where people are just paying up for the same assets. Mm, mm. There hasn't really been strong growth there in terms of uh, earnings growth and, and, and dividends and income streams and those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, that 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 boost from Trump being elected was all based on. Uh, tax cuts, infrastructure plans, repealing healthcare with taxes in it as well, and he's done nothing. You know, it, it's remarkable to have Republicans in the, in control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they can't get it together. Mm. 
So at some point, I've been saying this for a little while, I think reality starts to kick in and then you're back to requiring, um, you know, good fundamentals again. So um, probably the key piece of economic data I'm looking for, it's in the States, but it's also in Australia and in parts of Europe as well, is we need to see a pickup in incomes. Mm. Um, You know, in in the US, they're at uh, sort of mid-fours in terms of their unemployment level. We're a bit higher than that, but we've had strong jobs growth over the last three, four months, but mm. that hasn't yet translated into wages growth. And that's actually interesting because in, in the US, when the markets went so high, uh, after the GFC, company profits sort of soared and the share... Uh, the share that the um, the companies were getting, as opposed to the you know to the workers, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it changed a lot, didn't it? The companies really that's, you know kind of took a much is, bigger share yeah. of the of the of the That's income. a really really long term phenomenon, and I'm talking mm. sort of you know thirty forty years there. In that that share of economic growth between labour and capital has overwhelmingly favoured capital over mm. the last several decades. Mm. Uh, in the U.S. in particular, you know, no middle-class income growth in real terms for 30-odd years. Exactly. All right, John, thank you again for your time and uh, Pleasure, look Ruben. forward to, to getting you on at some point down the track. Have a great day. Cheers, mate. Okay. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. Uh, we've just had a great episode and now it's time for my usual segment, uh, Propeller Head of the Week. And this Propeller Head of the Week is quite simple. Don't buy the automatic insurance that banks offer you when you take out a loan. It is generally garbage. Uh, The Commonwealth Bank have just had to refund about $10 million in those premiums because they were sold to people who didn't need it and wouldn't be able to claim. So that's the first thing. The second thing is often with these types of policies, uh, they don't go through any kind of medical, medical underwriting when you apply for it. Um, they don't check your health, but if they, if when it comes to claiming, they can go back and retrospectively look at it, um, which is a problem. And the other problem is, is that when they recommend that cover, it's based on a very, very superficial assessment of your needs. So it might be, well, you've got a hundred thousand dollar home loan, so you need to, um, you know, you need to get a hundred thousand dollars of insurance. Uh, but you might have a lot of dependent kids, and you might have debts with other banks. And all they do is take the very, very superficial look. So my recommendation when it comes to insurance is to get advice. All right. Well, that wraps up the show for today. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Um, My name's Ruben Zelwe. You can look at any of my uh, podcasts, the previous podcasts for the show on iTunes by searching uh, The Finance Hour or you can go to the J Air website as well, which I understand is still a little bit of a work in progress, um, but it is coming along. All right, then that's all for me from today, and we will see you again next week.